Right, welcome um, to today's uh, lunchtime event, which forms part of the LSE Festival, New World Disorders, um, uh, which is part of a whole year of activities exploring how social science can tackle global issues. And today we're uh, looking back a bit and looking at LSE itself um, with whatever happened to the revolution, LSE, in the 1960s. I'm Sue Donnelly, uh, LSE archivist and author of the exhibition LSE 1966 to 1969, which is currently on display down in the Atrium Gallery, and I do encourage you to go and take a look at that and also to watch the accompanying film. Uh, I'm happy to be joined by Professor Mick Cox. Uh, Mick is Director of LSE Ideas and Emeritus Professor of International Relations here at LSE, but far more importantly in the context of today, he is currently researching and writing a history of LSE. We're actually going to um, split this event between us. Um, I'm going to kick off with a quick run through the events of 1965 to 1969 um, because the chronology is uh, sometimes a little tricky. And, uh, and then Mick will discuss the background and the causes of the unrest and their relevance to LSE. And then, as usual, uh, after the lecture, there'll be a chance for you to put your questions to both of us for about 20 to 30 minutes. Um, I just remind you that this event's being recorded, and we do hope that there'll be a podcast of it in the future. If you're using Twitter, then we've got two hashtags. Uh, hash, hash New World Disorders and Hash LSE Festival. Um, and also, I would ask you to put your phones to silent, which I did remember to do with my own. So, um, on screens behind, we've got some images which are taken from some of the ephemera and photographs of the period, and they'll be rolling through while we're talking. But I'm going to start now with um, running through the events of 1966 to 1969. The 60s were very much a period of change and unrest in universities and colleges across North America and Europe, a period when the post-war baby boomers entered higher education. There were disturbances at the University of California, Berkeley, at the Nanterre campus of Paris uh, University, and in many British universities, including Leicester, Essex, Hull, and even the Hoban College of Law and Commerce got in on the act. Uh, at LSE, the period between 1967 and 1969 became known as the LSE Troubles. It was a time of sit-ins, demonstrations, and fraught student union meetings. The catalyst for much of the context began with a search for a new director to replace Sir Sidney Kane. This began in 1965, was spearheaded by a small selection committee headed by the chairman of the Court of Governors, Lord Bridges. Um, and it appears to have entailed members of that panel proposing individuals they thought would be a good director, all of whom were, of course, male. Um, and when the first four suggestions turned down the offer, they began again with another round of suggestions. And finally, they settled on approaching Walter Adams, who was then principal of the Multiracial University College in Rhodesia. Adams, who is... Oh on the screen right now, um, had a previous connection with the school. He'd been secretary to the Academic Assistance Council established by Beveridge to support Jewish academics in fleeing mainland Europe. And in 1938, he'd been appointed as school secretary. 
However, he'd left in 1940 to undertake war work and did not return to the school. And I suspect to the director's selection committee, he probably seemed like a safe pair of hands. But Rhodesia's white minority government had recently unilaterally declared independence, and some questioned whether uh, Adams had been sufficiently active in protecting the multiracial character of the college and opposing the government. And the selection process seemed very flawed to many. Not only did the students play no role in selecting the new director, nor did most of the staff. The Court of Governors accepted the recommendation of Walter Adams in June 1966. At the beginning of uh, the Michaelmas term, the LSE Socialist Society published an agitator pamphlet called LSE's New Director, a report on Walter Adams. The pamphlet accused Adams of failing to oppose Rhodesia's white minority government. The president of LSE Students' Union, David Edelstein, who came from a South African family, sent a copy to the chairman, Lord Bridges, and asked whether the selection panel had known about Adams' activities in Rhodesia. Lord Bridges, a former cabinet secretary, seemed genuinely shocked that Adelstein should even think he had the right to ask the question. <laughs> but with media attention growing, Bridges wrote to the Times saying it was neither necessary nor indeed proper to comment on the internal affairs of the university. On the 29th of October, the Times published a response signed by David Edelstein and other members of the SU stating... It is difficult to understand how one can avoid discussing a man's record as an administrator in one college when he has been considered for the post as director in another. Disciplinary proceedings were brought against Edelstein on the grounds that he, needed, he required the director's permission to write a letter to the national press on school business. Not everyone agreed with that interpretation of school procedures, but by the end of term, Edelstein had been deemed to be in breach of regulations, but no, no punishment was imposed. Academic board had discussed Adam's appointment for four hours and uh, accepted the appointment, but the director, Sidney Kane, later wrote a memo which acknowledged that many of the staff did not like the appointment and were unhappy with the procedures. In January 1967, the opposition to Adams was taken up by the Graduate Students Association led by an American student, Marshall Bloom, who had experience of the US civil rights movement. He organised a teach-in on sit-ins meeting in the old theatre under the banner Stop Adams, saying, We must make it clear that we still don't want Adams and are prepared to take direct action to prevent his becoming our director. Come to a meeting on Tuesday at 4pm in the old theatre to discuss what can be done to stop him. The director, Kane, banned the meeting, which immediately incensed the union council, and they decided the meeting should go ahead. The director posted porters at the doors and took the light fuses out of the old theatre so it was in darkness. <laughs> Students gathered on the ground floor of the old building. Kane came down to explain and started to, he started to say students have no rights to the old theatre, but after rights he could not finish his sentence. Students surged into the old theatre. Sadly, this turned into a tragic event. A porter who was not on duty at the time, Edward Poole, and who was known to be frail and to have a weak heart, went to the help of his colleagues and was seen grey in the face slipping down to the floor. Carried to the porter's room, an ambulance called, he died from heart failure. He'd not been attacked or pushed. The director went to the theatre and told the students the school was closed for the day and a joint press statement was issued with the students' union. 
that the school and the students' union share the deepest regret that the chain of events should have had this tragic end. In March, a board of discipline found Edelstein and Bloom guilty of disobeying director's orders not to hold a meeting and encouraging the storming of the old building. They were suspended till the end of the summer term. A mass meeting of the union of over 800 students began a sit-in, which continued for eight days till the end of term. The lobby and the corridors were full of students, uh, and the union took over the old theatre. No attempt was made to prevent other students going to classes, and there, were no, there was no violence. It was mainly good-humoured. John Griffiths, the lawyer, said it was great fun for them. <laughs> it was also the period when LSE began to hit the news as rebellion at the School for Rebels. This may partly have been due to the fact that ITN, uh, which was then only recently founded, actually had its studios just around the corner, so it was very easy to get a news story. Yeah. In summer, uh, in March, the Standing Committee heard Edelstein and Bloom's appeal, and they were both allowed to return early to the school. Over the summer of 1967, Sidney Kane retired, and despite all the opposition, Adams took over as director. The academic year 1967 to 1968 was relatively quiet. Uh, in February 1968, the Machinery of Government Committee uh, published a report which included discussion of the relationship between the school and students and declared that systematic channels for a two-way flow of information between students and other members of the school are inadequate. But despite this, the committee only proposed some fairly minor changes that there should be four to eight student members on court, three student members of council, and five students on Senate. This was a proposed new body which was never actually implemented. <laughs> students were dissatisfied with the uh, scale of the response, uh, but some staff felt that students lacked the skills or experience for meaningful involvement. In the end, no students served on council, but the Standing Committee of Court began regular meetings with students, and the General Purposes Committee of the Academic Board co-opted four student members from the student union. But for, four, for more radical students, it was definitely too little too late. The summer of 1968 saw two significant events. First of all, the school installed a series of gates, actually flimsy iron grills, and there is a picture of, of them up there, at strategic points around the school, which allowed the building to be compartmentalised and serve the subsidiary purpose of limiting the area of sit-ins or occupations. Their initial appearance provoked kind of little response, really. And then on the 1st of October 1968, Lionel Robbins, uh, the same Lionel Robbins that the library building is named for, became chairman of the Court of Governors. Robbins had been associated with the school since the 1920s as a student, a member of staff, head of department, and now as chairman of the Court of Governors. He was a towering figure in the school, a very strong personality with strong views about the way the school should work and relations between the school and students. And he was a key figure in the coming year, often overshadowing the director. The first flashpoint of 68 to 69 came in October with the anti-Vietnam War occupation. Uh, on the 17th of October, the Students' Union discussed the possibility of opening the school's buildings for sanctuary during a big demonstration to provide medical aid and political discussion. The president of the Students' Union, Colin Crouch, thought this was unlikely to go ahead, but the motion in favour of opening the school was passed. On the 23rd of October, a second and largest Students' Union meeting spread over three rooms discussed occupying the buildings, and this time the motion was defeated by a majority of 60. 
the SU honorary president, Meghnad Desai, requested a recount, and on that occasion, the motion was defeated by just six votes. And it should be remembered that at this point, the National Union of Students actually had a kind of no politics clause in its constitution. Mm. And the uh, LSU Students Union president, Colin Crouch, actually declared that the LSU would be neutral on the question of a demonstration. The school governors, hearing about the proposed occupation, were concerned that the Students' Union would be unable to control any non-LSE visitors to the campus. The director, Walter Adams, issued a statement that the school buildings would be closed on the Saturday and the Sunday. But unfortunately, the statement nudged student opinion towards supporting the occupation, and on Thursday evening, after contacting the director, 200 people remained in the building overnight. And on Friday, although an attempt was made to put up school signs indicating that the school was closed, so many staff and students were arriving that the buildings remained open. And Beaver, the student union newspaper, estimated that 600 people occupied the buildings over Friday night. On the Saturday, there were rumours that the police would enter the building. But actually, this was highly unlikely, as the police told the director that policing the anti-Vietnam War demonstration meant there were very few resources available for anything else. But Adam stressed in a statement to academic staff, it had never been my intention to seek police assistance to eject peaceful sitters in, and I have taken no part, no action to this end. Throughout Saturday, more students arrived. There were seminars, films and music. Um, some students had invited members of Camden Poster Workshop to join the occupation. Uh, they arrived in a van on Friday evening with a screen print table and other equipment and turned the refectory on the fourth floor into a print studio and quickly began printing posters. On the Sunday, a medical centre was set up with four doctors supported by 20 medical students Gosh. and nurses, uh, which Beaver later reported had actually dealt with 35 injured demonstrators. There always seemed to be more medical staff than, uh, than demonstrators. A great deal of effort went into assuring the occupation was peaceful. A committee of public safety and the <laughs> occupation services group dealt with the practicalities of sleeping arrangements and cleaning up. Brooms and rubbish sacks were to be kept under the clock by the old theatre. Students were advised to bring their own food, but a small stall sold sandwiches, fruit and cold drinks with proteins going to war on want and the emergency fund for Vietnam. According to Beaver, the only damage reported was one broken window. <laughs> On the Sunday following the occupation, the students left the building uh, peacefully. Indeed, Colin Crouch claimed the buildings were in a cleaner state than they had been before the occupation. Um, the following week, the Students' Union passed a motion of censure against the Students' Union Council, and the president, Colin Crouch, resigned along with four other members of the council. And the governors, led by Lord Rubbins, issued a statement aimed at members of faculty who had supported the students but decided to take no action against them. <coughs> 77 staff members responded with a statement noting that Article 28 of the school's Articles of Association stated that no member was to be punished for expressing their opinion on any subject. The occupation had passed off peacefully, but changes in LSESU meant there was more conflict ahead. In 1969, attention shifted back to issues around Rhodesia and South Africa, with the agitator group focusing on links between the LSE governors and companies doing business with Rhodesia and South Africa. The Students' Union organised a series of meetings on these issues. Adams spoke at the first of these, and there was an impromptu uh, occupation of the senior common room, as it was then known. And Adams was faced with three demands, to publish a list of any school holdings in Rhodesia and South Africa, 
um, to ask that any of the school's governors should resign from the boards of companies trading with white South Africa, Southern Africa, and the companies trading with white Southern Africa should not be allowed to recruit on the school's premises. Adams, um, and there was also a, a, a pamphlet published by um, Agitator again on the school and South Africa, which Adams claimed was grossly inaccurate, defamatory and anonymous, and therefore (laughs) could not serve as a basis for serious discussion. On the uh, 17th of October, uh, Lord Robbins addressed the Students' Union, and there were a lot of hostile questions about involvement with South Africa, and also about the gates, which had appeared in the summer. Robbins admitted these were to prevent unauthorised access and the Students' Union passed an emergency motion that the gates be removed. From going unnoticed, they had become symbols of anti-student oppression. On the 20th of uh, October, the director explained that the gates would be used against unauthorised occupation. On the 22nd of October, Academic Board adopted a series of resolutions condemning the unauthorised occupation of the school's premises by anybody whatever, defining the disruption of good order as an offence against the school and, uh, and accepting there was an obligation on all members of staff and students to assist in the preservation of order. There were then, on the 23rd and 24th of October, a series of votes in the Student Union about whether there should be direct action taken against the gates. Uh, This was defeated on the first attempt by 365 votes to 332. And then at the second, uh, they were... um, uh, was defeated by 282. On the next second time, the vote was in favour of tearing down the gates by 282 to 231. Some students stormed out to start dismantling at gates and found senior academics in position to defend them. (laughs) There's some confusion about what happens next, but there were certainly some very unseemly scuffles with academics clinging to gates to defend them while students appear to have found tools to remove them. At 9.30pm, the director declared the school closed indefinitely and asked the police to enter the school to restore order. Staff arrived, and as students emerged from the building, there was a very distasteful identifying of culprits. Over 30 students were arrested and spent the night in the cells at Bow Street. School took out injunctions, preventing 13 students from entering the school, four of whom were not LSE students. Academic Board then uh, passed a motion in support of Adams' action in bringing in the police. From the 24th... um, of January to the 19th of February, the school closed for 25 days, a period shrouded in myth in some ways. Some staff did uh, hold lectures and seminars off campus in flats and houses and cafes. The school administration moved to Senate House and the LSE Student Union to Yulu, uh, which became a kind of LSE in exile. School was advised not to take disciplinary action against students with injunctions against them, as that might interfere with the legal process. So attention turned to three academics accused of supporting the students, Robin Blackburn in sociology, Nicholas Bateson in social psychology, and Lawrence Harrants in economics. Some staff opposed the students' management. Uh, A statement was issued uh, opposing what was seen as the school's attempt to limit free speech and the right of demonstration. 
LSE Students' Union took a very different model of the school in reading of their aims, which uh, they declared to be that the LSE Students' Union does not accept the strictly legal view that the London School of Economics is a business owned and operated by the Standing Committee of the Court of Governors under regulations laid down by them and by them alone. We do not regard the LSE as a piece of property only. On the contrary, we regard the London School of Economics as consisting in its most essential aspect of its staff and students working together for the purposes of their choosing rather than those imposed upon them by the LSE Court of Governors. School finally reopened on the 19th of February. 300 students gathered in Lincoln's Inn Fields marching to the school. Uh, a union meeting rejected the uh, suggestion of another occupation. And the rest of the spring and summer terms moved on with court hearings and disciplinary events. Robin Blackburn and Nicholas Bateson were dismissed. But ultimately, students needed to sit exams. And there was, in fact, a general air of exhaustion about the school. There were continuing rumbles in the coming years, but nothing as serious as those as 1968-69. And Walter Adams remained director of the school until 1974. Thanks very much. That's great. Okay. Oh, let me get around here. Well, Sue, Sue has provided a wonderful chronology there. Uh, as she said, there, there were many parts of the troubles, many many parts of it. I, one little personal note: I'd like to welcome back to the LSE a former director over here, Craig Calhoun. Uh, a, a radical and dangerous human being in his own time, and you'll see a very fine portrait of him over here. Craig, welcome back to the school that you, you so well directed for many years. Thank you again. Now, Sue has outlined the chronology, um, and, and some of it, I, I noticed that many of us started laughing at certain points. I mean, the idea of a philosopher hanging onto some gates... <laughs> to try and uh, stop the students knocking them down. But it does actually illustrate how the school had unfolded by then. I've, I've got a few things here which might also illustrate how the situation, how it had become by 19, late 68 and 69. I mean, for instance, did you know, probably not, because I'm the one who's giving the talk, that uh, the uh, Mr. Adams, Dr. Adams, and uh, the... Lord Robbins, a very powerful figure at school, actually met the Secretary of State on the 27th of January, 1969. Uh, I assume in a confidential, possibly secret meeting, in which the, and Lord Robbins, who was not a man to kind of mince his words on in anything, uh, as, as Sue said, a very powerful figure at the school, free market economist. He was the man who appointed both Hayek and Popper. So I think you get the tone of his uh, politics. But an extraordinary, extraordinary, direct, extraordinary person, anyway. He said, uh, he said to the Secretary of State then, uh, we've got some very dodgy people at the school, particularly one group, are very irreconcilable. Their aim was to break the nerve of the governing body and academic staff. They wanted one man, one vote. Notice women. Um, they made union meetings discordant, bitter and obscene. They sought to run the university by huge but representative mass meetings. The situation was becoming very ugly. And then he went on. But Robbins himself, actually, if you look, read his own autobiography on this, is quite interesting. He kind of put it down to a lot of foreign agitators, uh, largely American, people like Craig Calhoun, um, who had come to the school with all of their experiences in the student democratic society in the United States and had played a very large role, they said. And there were three at least who, who have written about this, by the way, Hawk 
a man called Victor Schoenbach, and of course he mentioned Marshall Bloom, who played a part in the early stages of this, sadly and tragically later committed suicide in, in 1969. So, but it does give you a flavour. It does give you... And this was a highly publicised event as well, a series of events. Uh, Darendorf, in his own history of the school, actually deals with these events not badly, I thought, really, given he's director. Uh, but nonetheless, even from an official perspective, he kind of does regard this as an extremely important part in the history of the school, doesn't avoid it, maybe some people today would like to, forget about it, I don't think we should. And then secondly, makes the very important point that the school itself made some mistakes along the way. Um, at the same time that this was happening, this meeting with the Secretary of State about these very dodgy agitators, uh, Trotskyists and many, many others, I noticed from May 1969, a group of students from the LSE actually went and burnt the Financial Times outside the offices of the, F of the FT. Now, nobody burns the FT today, certainly not at the, F at the LSE. They're too busy looking at the jobs pages, I should imagine. Uh, but why were they burning the Financial Times uh, outside the FT? Of course, Lord Robbins, of course, again... Uh, was very much associated, and they wanted to make a point ab about it. But I think what all this illustrates, and we can bring in many, many other aspects to it, and not all of it very funny, by the way, you know, two, two academics were sacked and uh, st some students' careers were ruined, and it left an image of the school. I remember talking once to uh, Tony Giddens, who was over there as well, and he said, certain events in the history of the school are sticky, and they stick to the image of the school, and certainly the 60s stuck to the image of the school for a very, very long time indeed. This is what I call my black cab taxi driver test of the LSE. When I first arrived at the LSE 15 years ago, getting, in, getting into a cab, black cab outside, you know, when I could afford it, uh, I got in, of course, had the inevitable conversation. This was pre-Brexit, thank goodness. Uh, but nonetheless, when, <laughs> lots of Brexit taxi drivers out there, as you know. And basically, the usual view is, uh, is it still a bloody place full of damn communists, you know? So, the, and this was in 2000, you know, this was long, long, long after the event. So, so the stickiness, the image, uh, which was generated by the 60s, uh, of course, came to the LSE for good or bad. I'll leave that to you to think about. Now, Sue has mentioned, I think, three big points. One, the Adams appointment, the Walter Adams' appointment. I'm not going to go back over that, but there's no doubt, if you read through the memoirs of people who are here at the time, and I, I know many of them still, people like Martin Shaw, Mike Malott, and others, each one in turn makes the point about the Adams appointment, that this was, in a sense, the tipping point moment. And, of course, the pamphlet, which you saw, was a, was a very, very, uh, very, very successful piece of uh, propaganda. It was largely written, by the way, and I know most of the people, I wasn't here at the LSE, but it was largely, but not only written by members of the International Socialists. And I'm going to say more about the role of the new left at the LSE, because it's part of the story. Um, my friend Martin Shaw, who later went on to teach sociology, now is a counsellor down in Devon. There's an evolution. But Martin said that um, it was a collective product, but largely came out of the International Socialist Grouping of the time, which later morphed, as many people around this room may or may not know, morphed into something called the Socialist Workers' Party. But the appointment was really crucial because it precipitated a whole debate about the procedures of appointment, who should appoint, and why appoint somebody like Adams. I won't go back over Adams. Adams is a very interesting mixed character. He's basically essentially a liberal, uh, but in an impossible situation down in Rhodesia, 
And by the way, it was, it was in a sense unfortunate for Adams that one of, the, one of the key people who played a big role in the writing of that pamphlet was a man called Basque Vashi, who had been imprisoned in, uh, in, in Rhodesia and came in a very important part of writing that. So the coincidence for Adams was unfortunate. Um, it's the, also the whole question that Harold Macmillan later said about events, dear boy, events. There's the unfolding of events. Yeah, it's, it's the action, reaction, action. You start at A and you end up at F and you don't know quite why you've arrived at F. So in a sense, it's responses of the school to what they regard as really a challenge to the authority of the school, which raises the question of why, therefore, this huge clash. It's almost, putting aside for one second the politics, put aside also the generational issue. Every time I come back to look at the 60s, this whole question of generational gap just comes up so frequently. You know, a new, young generation of students, and by the way, many of them grammar school boys and girls, first time university, coming to the school, suddenly being confronted by that old notion of in loco parentis, and then suddenly being told that they really didn't matter so much and certainly shouldn't put their noses into the administration of the school. Whereas on the other side, people like Lord Bridges and the Board of Governors and the Chairs of Governors actually couldn't see why the students just didn't shut up. You know, just keep quiet. This is not your business. I don't think one would ever try that out today. So I think it's a timing, it's a question of context. I've said that the generation who ran the school were the generation born between the wars and in World War II, even grew up in the sense in the framework of empire, and nonetheless suddenly confronted a, a whole new range of students coming to the school, with, with, with not necessarily immediately with radical ideas, but, but in a sense brought up on Bob Dylan and brought up on rock and roll and brought up on a whole bunch of other things, which I think many of the people running the school had no idea about what, what, whatsoever. I want to say three things and then two, and then I'll finish quickly. One, uh, about the students themselves. It's very easy and too, too dangerous to genera- generalise about students, as anybody teaching at the LSE today knows only too well. Not, not all the students um, at the LSE at the time were carrying copies of Leon Trotsky in their back pockets. Indeed, one of my colleagues who was here in 1970, Bob Arnold, who went on on to work with me in Glasgow, said he came to the school, thought it would be terribly radical, and found out that it wasn't. And this was a very deeply disappointing thing to find so few members of staff, as opposed to a lot of members of staff, actually on on the left. It was a kind of disappointment factor. But there's a number of things about the students who came here. But first of all, he said that one of the things he noticed when he came here, the biggest society at the LSE was the Conservative Society. This was slightly worrying, because he thought at least the Labour Party would be the right wing, the Communist Party would be in the middle, and then the Trotskyists and the Maoists and the anarchists would be... No, it wasn't like that at all. He said it was slightly, slightly different, slightly, and certainly on the, on the side of the staff. You know, why were some members of staff almost policing the situation here, a rather odd situation to be in. But there are some things just to broadly say about the students while avoiding some generalisations. One, of course, there was the question of expansion of the numbers of students at the school. This is often mentioned in the secondary literature. You know, in a way, Robbins, the Robbins report of 62-63, which was actually a very good report. I mean, I've always been in favour, I've been critical of Lionel Robbins or maybe on economics, I'm much more of a Keynesian, but nonetheless, the Robbins report was about expansion. 
A pool of talent was out there. Let's make sure that pool of talent is pulled into, the, pulled into universities. And maybe uh, later on, uh, Hugh Trevor Roper, the very conservative historian, who spoke here, said, all these troubles at the school is because of Lionel Robbins, because of expansion. He's, he's got rid of the elite conception of the university. And I think that's a very interesting observation by Hugh Trevor Roper, who, who delivered a narration here, very, very, very interesting and quite controversial one at that time. Uh, uh, Bernard Crick, a very old friend of mine who taught politics up in, in Sheffield, who later was external examiner in my old university at Queen's Belfast, also said the, there was a real distance between staff and student. That was his impression. He had been here. Um, he kind of won, he, he actually made the point about student satisfaction, a, a, very, a very interesting point today. Uh, he said, the problem with you couldn't find the staff, they were either doing their research or were sitting over in the BBC World Service or down in the city of London doing their, doing their, you know, doing their consultation. So that's Bernard Crick's particular take on it, but worth, worth mentioning. There's also something different about LSE students. I think this is also... As Sue said, the troubles went across the UK university system, but there was something you know, specific and unique about LSE students. Firstly, it was, it's a pure social science university, and I think that makes a difference. If you like, I never think of medics and people who build bridges and people who pull out teeth as being dangerous radicals. Maybe they are in certain countries, but you've got a concentrated social science uh, university here. Also, if you looked at it too... Uh, the age range of the students was slightly older. And, of course, there were far more postgraduates at the LSE as well. Now, again, that means the character of the student body here was, was much different to the average university. My first university was Reading, and it was nothing like the LSE, I can, uh, I, I can reassure you. Moreover, the, the university, or the school, as I prefer to call it, the school itself was very much as it had been ever since the days of the great founders of the Webbs and Shaw and Graham Wallace, had always been keen on being global. And if you actually look at the composition of the student body at the LSE in the 1950s, or, see, or even go back to the 30s, by the way, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, if you look in the 1930s, the biggest group of students here come from India, from the subcontinent, or from the Raj, as it was then called. You know, the biggest group of students here in the 1960s were, again, those Americans. And many of those Americans had gone through the radicalization of students for democratic society. Uh, you mentioned Hock, Schoenbach, uh, Marshall Bloom, all had played a role in the earlier uh, radical movements of free speech at Berkeley and elsewhere. So there were different kinds of students. I want, however, to focus on two things and then wrap up, and then because we can then go on to, uh, to talk about and maybe some memoirs from some of the old comrades out there, and we'll, we'll sing the Internationale at the end if anybody wants to. Uh, I, I suppose I, I would want to take the debate outside of the LSE as well and kind of think of the global context. Because so many of the things which are radicalizing students, bringing students to political you know, consciousness actually had something to do with the UK. It had something to do with the Wilson government of 1964 and the disappointment that the Wilson government uh, introduced into politics. Wilson was no radical, as we know, and, of course, he went along, at least in private, maybe not, on Vietnam. But it's, it's, the, it's the internationalism, the internationalization of the debate I find very interesting. And I think we've got to bring that global part back into the discussion. We can look at the internal... Features and it's very important to do so. You know, 
British universities, what the LSE specifically. But I think there were t- there's a couple of things about the global I think we need to say. Firstly, about the role of the United States. Uh, now, I don't, I, I don't go along with, 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 Mr., with, with Lionel Robbins on, it was damned American foreign agitators, and what the hell were they doing over here anyway, destroying my wonderful university kind of argument. But there's no question the number of Americans here did make a difference. And the number of Americans who were seriously involved in the troubles, who played a role at different stages, Bloom first and then later Hoch and Schoenberg, that, that was an important part. They did bring these experiences to, 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 to the table in, in, throughout the 1960s. I think also, it, it was also events within America which radicalized students here. You know, I, again, being old enough, I can remember well enough what the 60s was like. I was there, you know. But I remember the things that radicalized me most in the 1960s. And it had very little to do with British politics, which I found profoundly boring. Today, I find it profoundly depressing. Then I found it profoundly boring. I just couldn't get, get myself worked up about Harold Wilson. You know, I really couldn't. I tried, I tried, I just couldn't do it. However, when I looked across the Atlantic, the civil rights movement in the United States, the student movement in the United States, the growing opposition to the war in Vietnam in the United States and across the world, that is what I think I found, if you like, that is what turned me on more and more uh, to, to politics. The other thing is, and of course it brings us back to the Adams question on the question of racial questions and the question of decolonization in Africa. The first demonstration I nearly got hit over the head on, by the way, was attending uh, a, a, a demonstration actually led by Peter Hayne um, up in Edinburgh. I was in Glasgow this day, and it was to try and stop the Springboks, the South African rugby team, playing. We, we got pretty thoroughly smashed up, by the way. Rugby supporters were pretty big, brutal guys. Uh, and I was not too big or brutal. But nonetheless, the whole question of what was happening in Africa, decolonization in Africa, was very, very sensitive. The apartheid question was a huge factor in radicalization, at least particularly in this country. And of course, the whole question of what was then going on in Rhodesia, Udia, highly sensitive political issue. And you didn't have, as I say, you didn't have to be a Trotskyist <laughs> to be opposed to apartheid in South Africa, or even to be worried about what was happening in Rhodesia. And of course, from that point of view, without going into the personality of Walter Adams, which we don't need to here, you could see why this was such a sensitive issue and why it so precipitated such a backlash, even amongst people who may not have believed everything in that pamphlet. Because there's some things in that pamphlet which are not entirely accurate, and there are things which are. It's a mixed bag, but it was a very effective piece of political propaganda. And I always ask this question, the school must have been blind a bit to the idea that there's a world out there which actually may be moving in another direction. Adams may have been a liberal and he may have done all sorts of good things at the school in the 30s, which he did. Nonetheless, it seemed to me something, a a political blindness, not to see how much this appointment, whatever the personality of Adams would come in. The second thing I want to make a point about, and I hinted at it earlier on, was really the rise of the new left. Um, in his own book, um, Ralph Darendorf mentions it but doesn't go into it. Now, I was, <laughs> confession time, I'm not confessing for any reasons of guilt, I was and regarded myself then as a member of this broad thing called the new left. And I think 
you don't get the troubles really unfolding at the LSE at the end without sounding too conspiratorial. Um, you know, reds under beds, or so often reds in beds. Uh, you don't get, you don't really get the troubles here unfolding in the way in which they did in the end without the new left. This seems to me an absolutely central part of any analysis that one wants to look at. The pamphlet itself was largely written by a, a group of people who, broadly speaking, see themselves on the new left. Uh, mainly, and I, later some of them even became my friends and some of my political opponents, but many, of course, uh, within what was then called the International Socialist Group. Now, again, for those who are not terribly interested in the, all the details and the intricacies of the far-left groups at the time, don't worry, I won't, I won't take you too far down that road. But the IS clearly played a big role in this and nearly all the people I spoke to, admittedly most of the members of the IS, you know, wanted to say time and time and time again that, that all sorts of other people played a role here, um, including people who were not on the far left, and Social Democrats, Colin Crouch, etc. Uh, e even the Conservative leader of the, count of, the, of the Students' Union played a role. He even supported some of the movements of the students, so it's not just the straight. But the role of the IS in, in, in generating this and pushing this, I think, it has to be analysed, not in any sense of a conspiracy. Um, and, and it's interesting, therefore, how do we explain the rise of the new left? In, a, in an objective way, in a really objective way. Uh, Ernest Gellner, one of, the, yeah, one, of the great, one of the great sociologists of this school, of course, later on said, actually, I blame Stalin for what happened at the LSE, typical Ernest Gellner comment, and basically said, if the Communist Party had remained the Communist Party, if Stalinism had remained Stalinism, you wouldn't have got all these far-left groups emerging. Once you had destroyed the Stalin myth, you opened up a space on the left, and which is what happened in this country in the sixth, late, late 50s and, and into the early 60s. You know, and the thing about IS, and I, by the way, I was never a member myself, but one thing about the IS group, of course, it actually disliked Moscow as much as it disliked Washington. And it was an interesting, one of the comments was said at the time, and again, I get some questions from you on this issue. One of the students who was not a radical when she came here, but certainly was one when she left, said, what I liked about the IS group is that it didn't seem either apologetic for the United States, but on the other hand, didn't seem to be pro-Soviet either. It, it had broken from the, uh, from the rigid conformities which were imposed by the bipolar, by the bipolar uh, 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 Cold War. Now, so I think we've got to bring in the international, we've got to bring in the global into this debate, we've got to bring in the new left into this discussion, as well as all the other things that Sue mentioned, and one or two of the others. The question was asked, whatever happened, and I'll try and answer that in one minute. Well, in a way, I suppose the most immediate consequence, and this sounds a bit you know, trite, but it's important to say, uh, was the appointment of that man over there in the corner, Mr. Darendorf. And look, if you actually look at the Ralph Darendorf, the eighth director of the school, if you, I, I don't know, and I actually haven't looked in the archives on this, but I would imagine that after the Adams appointment, nobody was going to say publicly they'd made a mistake, but nonetheless, I think they, went, they must have found, tried to find a director who would not reproduce, who would actually, in a sense, act as a bomb. And, you know, you couldn't have found anybody better than Ralph Darendorf in some ways. He was, after all, one of those damn sociologists. He had studied at the school. He had engaged with the far left in, 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 in Germany, remember. There's a wonderful picture of Ralph Darendorf talking to the far left radical Rudy Dutschke, one of the student demonstrators. In other words, I think there was a sense, and, of course, he was German, he was the first sociologist, 
You know, he didn't carry any of the kind of imperial baggage, uh, unfortunately, that Adams... So I wonder if that was, a, was, a, was an important part immediately. Secondly, I don't underestimate the impact that the 60s had on British political culture. Uh, maybe I'm a, I'm a result of it. Um, it's very easy to say it ended and it failed. The revolution never had. Well, there was never going to be a revolution in this country. Come on. In spite of what my friend Tarek Ali used to say, you know, the coming British revolution, actually, Tarek, it wasn't coming, you know. But nonetheless, nonetheless, it's, it left a pretty profound political impact on the political culture of this country. If you like this country, and indeed the West more generally, it was never the same again. You know, it left a residue of criticism, it left a residue of debate and discussion. It left a whole generation had gone through it, both at the LSE and elsewhere. Thirdly, of course, and it's important to make this point, out of the, out of the new left, you know, emerged whatever the political parties were saying at the time, there was quite a lot of discontent within some of the, uh, on, uh, with some of these political groupings. They were very male, they were very hierarchical, they were very top-down. And actually, out of this, of course, grew a critique of some of these far-left or new-left groups, which, in a sense, provides us with the segue into the growth of the women's movement and even into the beginnings of gay liberation in this country. And it's very difficult to envisage the rise of the first women's movement to the second women's movement and the rise of a new literature on that, uh, which, you know, very much I, was, I read about at the time, w without thinking about the 60s again. And I think that sort of moves on as well. Um, and finally, of course, and two final things, it left, it did shift the debate within academia, there's no question. I mean, okay, we didn't go off and make the revolution, we went off and set up a left-wing journal, or whatever, you know what I mean? But nonetheless, throughout the 70s and the 80s, it did embed within the academy, for good or ill, you know, a, a, a kind of a new kind of academics who had come through the system, who had, come, who had been generated by that system. Now, of course, that, of course, is bound to lead to the question, where are we today? <laughs> We're in a very different place. And on that note, I shall end. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. We've got time now for uh, a few questions. Yeah. There is a roving mic, so if you could wait for that to kind of arrive. And if you could Thank also you. introduce yourself Just at the same time. The time. So. Oh, my God. Oh, gosh, lots. <laughs> it's the 60th generation. Yeah. Hi. Can we take one? Take a few, yeah. Just there. Do you want to take them all at once? And yeah, then... take four or, four or five. Minutes. If we take a few... And... Okay, well, this, my name's Michael Oppenheimer. I was here at this school uh, reading law from 65 to 69. Yes, there was an additional year when I failed economics. <laughs> Why economics? Um, I was a lawyer. Um, a couple of observations uh, on what you have glancingly mentioned Professor Cox um, one is that the Conservative Club was vastly larger than the Labour Club um, that the number of postgraduate students greatly outnumbered yeah. um, the number of undergraduate students and there are an awful lot of people uh, who were here uh, to work and really didn't take a very strong view on whether or not um, the Board of Governors uh, ought not to be interfered with by the students um, or whether the students should definitely be represented there. Yeah. Um, they just wanted to work. Yeah. And 
So what, be, what would be very interesting to know, I'm, not sure, I'm sure you don't have these numbers, is how large these clubs were, what the number of students were who actually, actually physically yeah, yeah. sat in yeah. on these particular occasions. I think relative to the uh, yeah. large number of students that were at the school, yeah. uh, they were relatively small. Yeah. So um, it was, I remember my very clear impression, sorry, I'm stopping now, yeah. my very clear impression then and remains today that, uh, that it was a relatively, relatively speaking, small number of right. people. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Anybody wants? Anybody, anybody? Just get the microphone Phone around. Yeah. Get some hands stuck. Yes, whoever, yeah, hi there. Pickering, I did a first degree and a doctorate here. Um, First of all, I don't think we should take seriously the numbers who joined the Conservative Association. They, most people joined because they did a rather lavish wine and cheese party. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it tells you anything about the ideology. <laughs> 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 anybody went to meetings after that. Okay. Um, wine and cheese party. My pardon. question is about, yeah. I mean, you framed this as very much about Adams and what... At the beginning? Yeah. Well, that's right. I think it broadened out, particularly into a debate about the quality of teaching yeah. and what we were being taught. I can remember a member of the government department saying to me that he didn't mind Marcuse being mentioned in classes. He just wished students who did so would read them first. <laughs> and there was certainly an active debate about yeah. the composition of courses and all, all yeah. the rest of it. Yeah. And that was part of what went on between 67 and 69. Yeah, no, thanks. thanks, great. Cheese parties, that's great. <laughs> How about our friend Craig Calhoun down there getting a, a, a sorry, a be prefer former director of the school. I resent this faculty in you know, demanding. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> could you use the mic? Yes, could you use the mic, please? Yeah, Hi, Craig. Hi, so I'm Craig Calhoun. I was not at the LSE at the time. I was a member of the Students for a Democratic Society, but at an American university at that point. Um, but just a, a quick comment, just great remarks from both of you, um, Sue and Mick. Um, one is about the role of international students and the non-Americans, right? So the um, head of the Graduate Students Association active in this point was a Chilean. Um, you mentioned the importance of Rhodesians. Um, the, I think the beginning of the yeah. you know, international students from a wider range of places at the LSE is very important in this period too. But the school changes after, um, particularly after the 1970s, to become dramatically less English. And I wonder if this is in part something that changes the political character of the school in significant ways in relation to this period um, that you've described. And I wanted to just ask one other question. The school um, at that time, it would be interesting to put this up against the composition of the school in terms of the different degrees and departments and so forth. So in 1968, the school was um, overwhelmingly majority English, even though there were a lot of Americans, right? It's now only a quarter English. It was overwhelmingly majority undergraduate. It's now a very narrow majority postgraduate. Um, and it was social sciences for the most part whereas it is now more disproportionately professional fields in business and management. Um, I wonder um, if the 
potential for the movements that you've talked about is shaped by these things. Yeah, thanks, Craig. Welcome back. Great. Take some more. Yeah. yeah. Lots of hands going up. Yeah, let people have an opportunity to say something. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I'm, I'm Nick Jeffrey. I was a student here, uh, full-time MSC student, 67, 68. And then after that, uh, during the occupation, I was a part-time PhD student. Uh, there, there are number of things I think should be emphasized on that, this. The, uh, one, the students' demands were, yes, participation, democracy, but the students' demands were also about war and the Vietnam War. I've got the badge here of the Stop It Committee, <laughs> Americans in Britain against the war in Vietnam. We opened up the roundhouse. Uh, we recruited the Pink Floyd, who'd been my students, <laughs> and, uh, in architecture. And, uh, you know, things went on for there. And so there was more to it, I think, and there was much more to it in terms of students here were demanding more relevance to working class struggles uh, with the talents that we had. And these were being implemented with community groups around London, around all across the Docklands, out in Notting Hill, especially, and down in Brixton. I was involved in all of that. I, I left uh, and immediately took up a position at the Architectural Association in the planning department, and the, the revolt had spread to the AA. Uh, the students made me head of the uh, postgraduate school of planning, which uh, role which I took and served. And uh, we did get involved with many communities uh, around London and in, in uh, Africa and in South America. So this was another aspect of the students' uh, demands. Uh, at that time, the, um, we, I, I personally uh, recruited to our uh, teaching in our course, Robin Blackburn. Oh. Uh, uh, not IS, IMG. No, IMG. Uh, Lawrence Harris. Mike McKenna. Richard yeah. Cooper. Yeah. Lots of people who have been made unwelcome here from yeah. the staff. Yeah. And, and we established a very radical planning school there, yeah. uh, which lasted some years. Hey, so I think... Uh, you know, what we were doing had, had, had more to do with many wider things in the world. Yeah, sure. And uh, so I'll uh, end with that. Thank you very much. Thanks. Can we take one more and then... Can we take one from further back? Yeah, so right, yeah. that would be good. So be say this... Yeah. Thanks for your comments. Yeah. Hello. That's good. That's good. <laughs> Hello. Thank you. Um, I'm Sophia. I'm an MSc student currently at LSE. I also did my undergraduate here. Um, and I wanted to ask why you think this this image of LSE as particularly radical has such stickiness, particularly now among a lot of people that I find seem quite proud that LSE has this history of kind of for the betterment of society, but then when pushed probably I've found don't do that much or wouldn't, do, wouldn't participate in equivalent protests now. We've had similar things with protests around cleaners not getting sick pay and things like that and when trying to mobilize people to do that while they'd quite happily claim LSE's radical history, would not actually go to the picket or sure. equivalent things. Thank you. Sue, do you want to go some of those? Have a pick up where you want to pick up. Pick up. And I'll pick up. I was just going to pick up on the numbers of students involved in, in events. Um, uh, Tessa Blackstone did a, a, a kind of survey afterwards, and she, they, with a number of other academics, and... They estimated that 40% of students had participated at some time. In some courses, like sociology, it was up to 60%. Um, 
So although 40% is still a minority of students, it is significantly larger, uh, partly to answer our last question, than you would now, now find. And it actually did make that very difficult for the, um, the school because that was quite a lot of students to have to be dealing with in terms of, of discipline or whatever. I don't quite know why... why um, it's been so sticky. I suppose actually it was widely, um, it's one of the events at the school which goes outside the school community, partly because of the news uh, coverage of it. And that's partly because LSE was so close to Fleet Street, which at the time was still the centre of the news industry. And as I said earlier, ITN um, could literally just send a cameraman round the corner and they had their story. So it was a an issue that went kind of beyond the school's own community. Uh, and I think that's why... So people arrive at LSE already knowing that story. Yeah. But it kind of yeah. does that. Yeah, just, just quickly, because there's a lot of hands going up, and I do want to... Well, let's just go on a little bit. Let's be a little 1960s, shall we? <laughs> yeah, OK, OK, I'm with you. Um, yeah, I, I like the story about the Conservative Club. My, my, I actually did mention the fact that a colleague of mine, a friend of mine, whom I met up in Glasgow finally, Bob Arnott, who came to the school very disappointed because he thought it was far too conservative. Because uh, the image had been one of the opposite. So uh, he, with the faculty members, l largely, he said, and it's only when he came out to Glasgow where, where he actually discovered you know, real working-class politics, he said, you know. Um, and, but he, I did actually mention, actually, the Conservative Club was, I, whether because it was cheese and biscuits or cheese and w warm red wine. Was it bull's blood we drank in those days, yes. wasn't it? Hirondelle, something terribly unsophisticated, anyway. Um, yeah, that's very interesting. Conservatives have always been good at you know, tea and sandwiches and, you know, getting things together. But, but nonetheless, I think it does raise a point. And, and, you know, going back to your point, Michael, it is Michael. You know, it does raise a point. You know, at the end, I, I meant to say, and I had another script, if you like, that you've got to be careful not to overgeneralise. You know, I mean, after all, in the end, if you look at the presidents of the Students' Union, one became one was a Conservative, and actually, um, Colin Crouch was a, was a good old-fashioned Social Democrat. And so, you know, we, we've got to be a bit careful. But nonetheless, the figures that Sue gives you does nonetheless show that many who may have come here, you know, a more labour or more middle of the road, actually did get radicalised and changed as a result of the experience itself. And I think that's an important part. It's the experience itself which changed a, a lot of people. Whether people approve it or not doesn't really matter. Um, on, on, on going back to Craig's good, good points um, on non-Americans, yeah, the Chileans were important. The others were the Greeks, by the way. I, I did. A, I did a. I don't know if you remember this one, but it's, it's an interesting story. I was giving a lecture in Athens about two years ago about the 1967 Colonel's coup, and I was looking actually at the, at the and what actually happened in London after the Colonel. This is the Colonel's coup in in Greece, of course. And uh, it's a, and I had this wonderful story. It's a, a group from the LSE, probably Greek. Um, <laughs> They were very clever. They got outside the Greek embassy, knocked on the door, said, I've got some flowers for the ambassador. The man said, well, do come in. The back of a van opened and about 50 Greek radicals rushed in, occupied the Greek embassy. Perfect, peaceful guerrilla warfare. So clearly, you know, that, that was very, very much an important part of it. But you raise a larger question, Craig. It's a sensitive question. You know, I mean, two things. How the school has changed, well, clearly it has obviously changed. Um, you know, the, the, a lot more students come here now for career. Uh, they pay a lot more money. You know, the whole question of you've got to repay, you know, it makes you much more 
well, what's the word, professionally oriented, career oriented, and, you know, taking time out to make revolution and read The Revolution Betrayed and occupying, you know, it, it may, you know, I mean, the economic, well, let me say, the pressures of capitalism themselves are making it not more difficult to be a rebel. I know this. The 60s was in some ways a, an easier decade. I remember it as an easier decade. You know, I mean, I got a grant. I came from a working class background. You know, I, I had a space in which to kind of do things. And the space there available now today, a lot of students obviously come from Asia. They're, you know, their parents, and I fully understand this. You know, so you've got to go there, get your job, and then earn 25000 in your first year. And uh, LSE now today boasts, by the way, we are number one because our students go out and earn more than Oxford and Cambridge. and So, so again, the ethos has changed, no, no doubt about it. And also the nature of the subjects, you know, business management, all those other things have grown. I mean, I'm not, I'm not decrying it or criticising it, I'm simply saying it is a, it is a fact. Thank you on the questions of your, your own observations. Actually, I know Robin Blackwell was in the IMG, I know that because I was also in the IMG. Um, and uh, I, I, I remember, I tell you, Rob, my Robin Blackburn story, he probably, Robin won't remember this, of course, but... We were on a Vietnam demonstration going down Park Lane. I hope this amuses you, thinking back on it. It's kind of strange. We were on a demonstration going down Park Lane, shouting the usual slogans at the time, smash the bourgeoisie, you know, limited slogans, you know. Uh, and, and then a lot of members of the bourgeoisie came out of the Hilson Hotel and started waving at us. And I thought, we're beaten. We're beaten already. This is repressive tolerance, you know. There we are saying smash them, and there they are waving at us, but smiling, you know. So anyway, I probably won't remember that. The image of the LSE largely, finally, yeah, this is an interesting question, isn't it? The LSE has, for its whole history, going back to the web, remember, it was four socialists who created this school. Okay, they were Fabians, they certainly weren't Marxists, they weren't revolutionists, quite the opposite. Nonetheless, it imprinted on the image of the school a certain image of its political origins. And it never quite, and I'm glad it never quite went away, by the way. I'm very glad it never quite went away. You might have gathered from my own comments here. Um, and, but nonetheless, school authorities have constantly struggled with that. They kind of want to exploit it because you want a bit of a radical edge. On the other hand, it might drive away, you know, money. It, you know, it might compromise you. And throughout the history of the school, I think there's been a, you know, A, we've got this, you know, decent, nice, you know, you know, social democratic kind of left origins story to tell. On the other hand, we don't want it to kind of compromise, you know, the teaching quality and objectivity. And Sidney Webb and all sorts of others struggled with this. And Harry Kidd, in his history of the LSE, and it's, a, it's an official history, because he was the school secretary. He was one of the hard men on, on the school side. Later said, I wondered if we worried about this too much and therefore overreacted. And I think there was some clear overreaction by school authorities. This, we don't want to have the image of the school being tarnished by all this, this kind of radicalism and, and leftism. Yeah. There's quite a number of gentlemen over here. Who's, who's had Let's his take hand. another yeah. couple of questions. That'll be. Yes, um, my name's Leon Kreitzman. I was a graduate student in international relations ah. in 67 to right. 68. Uh, Philip Windsor was the tutor. I was also at the time a vice president of the National Union of Students in right. this country. Okay. So I did spend time going to other universities and teaching colleges around the country at the same time. Yeah. And 67 to 68 was relatively quiet in the LSE. It was relatively quiet elsewhere. And the question is, was this a bit of LSE exceptionalism? Yeah. Or was it actually something that was generally reflected? And quite frankly, I have to say, it was the former. 
there was concern. I remember I was a graduate from Bristol University in a hard science, so I talked to doctors and dentists yeah, yeah, sure. and the rest of them. <laughs> and Rhodesia was a fundamental event in 65, I think mm. it was, at that time. And that did raise the consciousness of large numbers of people. There were large events, but generally, although there were sit-ins, there were various events, it wasn't huge. And one reason for this was, as, as I said, the international vice president, I did have to spend time in that. I went to Greece, where they were throwing students down the stairwells in the police stations. I went to France just after the events in 67 and 68. And there it was also a very different situation. Sure. There was a high level of exceptionalism in the LSE case. Some of it because of the self-conscious importance approach to it by the people at LSE at the time, <laughs> quite frankly. Yeah. It wasn't the biggest event going in the world. It wasn't the biggest event even in the educational movement at the time. But a large number of people, largely as you mentioned, the media were very close at hand. It was easy. Much more difficult to go to a teaching college in Olmskirk or somewhere. <laughs> and so I think it was overblown, quite frankly. Okay. Can we take one more from... Can we take one from the front here? Sorry. Could somebody Sorry. give somebody okay. a microphone? All right, great, thanks. Right, Hi, thanks. Um, Cheers. Jeff Evans, um, Economics and Statistics, 67 to 69. Um, first of all, uh, thank you both for your, uh, your, your pieces. And when Sue was talking, I thought, uh, I got a feeling reminder of how inept had been the, the handling of the Walter Adams appointment. And I thought, it couldn't happen now. <laughs> oh, yes, it could. Um, I think if we look at Theresa May's uh, attitudes towards the Houses of Parliament, or perhaps even radical Brexiters' views on the people that voted once long ago in July 2000, June 2016, we can see similar, though different, reverberations. My second point is that in there was a 35, uh, 35th anniversary meeting in 2003, and one of the people who'd been a student and became an LSE lecturer said, of course, accountability is different now. We have accountability now, and we didn't have in those days. I think it's worth thinking about what kind of accountability it is we have now. It's very bureaucratic. It isn't the sort of democratic thing that we were talking about in the 60s. And the third point, people have alluded to other institutions. Um, I'd just like to mention the one I went to, which was Enfield College of Technology, later Middlesex Polytechnic and University. It was full of, um, it was full of people from LSE, as you <laughs> might expect. Um, I won't name names, but... Um, and recently, we've collected them, the, the views together of what we were trying to do in the late 60s, early 70s, in a book called Enfield Voices, All right. which... Um, Unfortunately, times being what they are is marketed only through Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> okay. all right, well, I want to um, thank you all for being a very engaged do audience. Do you want, do you want to make one more? Well, yeah, I would actually, just very, very quickly. I mean, on the question of being overblown, I think we, you know, it, it, it's worth remembering. It follows up from part of your point. But I, in a sense, we don't want to underblow it, if that's, if that's the right <laughs> verb as well, I think, you know. 
And maybe there was an LSE exceptionalism, but I was at Glasgow as a postgraduate afterwards, and I found that there was quite a lot of residents in Glasgow. We actually did have an occupation there, not very well reported because we weren't next to Fleet Street. Uh, I had friends in Birmingham University, in Liverpool University, in solidarity with LSE. So I, I think, I, you know, I take your kind of, you know, let, let's be a bit careful, more balanced. But nonetheless, it did have a resonance around the country and it did have a resonance in other uh, higher education institutions. And I think we've got to be aware of that. But there was a certain specificity about LSE. I, 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 I take your point on board. The one thing I would say, and this is a comparative point, if we kind of compare the student movements and their resonance and their knock-on effects in other countries... Uh, I, by the way, later on in, in the 70s, uh, moved to Northern Ireland. Now, a student movement in Northern Ireland called People's Democracy did have a knock-on effect. And in a way, you could say that precipitated the, the, the troubles in Northern Ireland. Now, that was serious. <laughs> not, not that the people who were in PD, people like Michael Farrell and others who became friends of mine, caused this. But, you know, and in other countries, if you look at the level of violence, you look at May 1968 in France compared to what was happening here, you know. There you were battling with the CRS. You effectively nearly destroyed the state. You brought out the workers in a general strike. You look at what was happening in Italy in the movements of the, a radicalization there, by the way, which was infused by a large number of Maoists as well, who actually took the, the slogans of create one, two, three Vietnams in armed struggle very seriously, and this morphed into militarism, as it did in parts of West Germany. So again, I think on a comparative basis, as somebody later put it, you know, the British per typical, I mean, I'm not underestimating it, it wasn't anywhere near as violent, as widespread as it came to be in many, and indeed in the United States, you know, where, where you saw action there, both by the forces of authority, say in Kent State and others. On, on the last question, ineptness, I, th I think I do come back to that. Yeah, I mean, looking back on it, why, why it was handled so badly. You know, it's almost like the authorities, if I put it bluntly, are not. They almost seem to fall, do the wrong thing every single time in terms of responses to. Uh, immediate demands, and, and in a way that, in a way, generated the. Uh, uh, in a way, I think you know, without that poor response, and we do have student feedback today. I mean, in some ways, the school has changed dramatically. I mean, the idea you don't consult students, my God, that's that's kind of suicide. You know, it's you know that is really at the heart of, I suppose, some of the changes, and that's why I suppose again, coming back to Craig's point, we're more unlikely to find it again. But as as our friend says, you know, you never know. You never know. If we think places are stable, well, you can get it wrong. We thought the USSR would last forever, and it didn't. We thought the Soviet Union would stay in Eastern Europe. Guess what happened? Most people didn't think China would rise to become the economic superpower of Asia, and it's happened. And nobody predicted either Brexit or Trump. So let's beware. Events, dear boy. Events, dear girl, I should say. Events, dear woman. Events, dear people. We've got to count. So thank you very much. Right, well, thank you for uh, being a very engaged audience yeah. this lunchtime. Great. Um, do uh, I yeah. take a look at the exhibition that's down in the atrium gallery on the ground floor of this building? Uh, there are lots more events this week in the LSE Festival, and you can pick up a programme, I think, at the back of the room. Uh, and uh, we're hoping that this will go out as a podcast if there's anybody else you'd like to tell about this event or you'd like to listen again. But thanks again for thank attending. You, thank you, everybody. Thank you very much. <laughs>